The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Investors aren't ready for a Russian invasion of Ukraine. The European Central Bank's inflation fight has repercussions for the stability of the Eurozone. And India's biggest IPO is rushing to the stock market. Tune in as our columnists discuss our top business stories. This Breaking Views podcast is sponsored by Refinitiv, a London stock exchange business. Welcome to the Views Room. I'm Peter Thalarsen, EMEA editor of Reuters Breaking Views, coming to you once again this week from northwest London. For this week's edition, Breaking Views columnists talk about the possible financial fallout from war in the Ukraine, the consequences of European Central Bank stepping up its fight against inflation, and the upcoming initial public offering of a massive state-owned Indian insurance company. First, Dasha Afanasieva and I discuss the latest rumblings about Russia and Ukraine. It's been an intense few days with Western governments warning that Russian President Vladimir Putin could invade at any moment, while the Kremlin insists it has no such plans. Global stocks fell early in the week and then rebounded following reports that some Russian troops were returning to their bases. Dash has been looking at what Russian investors make of all of this and found that they are far from prepared for an imminent outbreak of hostilities and the resulting financial sanctions. After that, I talked to Breaking Views Economics editor Swaha Patanak about the European Central Bank's related assault on inflation. ECB President Christine Lagarde has opened the door to raising interest rates this year which implies the central bank ending its purchases of government bonds earlier than expected. That's had knock-on consequences for the Eurozone government debt markets, particularly Italian bonds, which have seen their yields widen sharply when compared to German bonds. Should we be braced for a return of the Eurozone financial crisis? Swaha reckons the ECB has some tools at its disposal, but it faces a harder juggling act than the Federal Reserve or the Bank of England. Finally, Unigalani and Anthony Curry talk about the upcoming listing of Life Insurance Corp of India. LIC is a household name in the country, and its products are often the first port of call for customers looking to do more than put savings in a bank. Now it's preparing India's largest IPO. Una reckons it's rushing too quickly and that the sale deserves a hefty discount. Hi, Dasha and Swaha. Welcome back to the views room. Hey, Peter. Hello. Hi, Swaha. Hi. Good to have you both on. Starting with you, Dasha, I really want to talk about the unusual situation we've been in this week, which is trying to find a financial insight into the possibility of a of war in Europe, and specifically a Russian invasion of Ukraine. I mean, we saw um, earlier this week global markets, stock markets selling off on the possibility of the, the, this idea uh, promoted by the, particularly by the American government, that an invasion was imminent. And then a bit of a relief rally when some Russian troops, it appeared, went back to their bases. Um, but you've been particularly looking at what Russian investors have been making of all of this. So tell me a bit about what you found out. Yeah, I mean, what really jumped out at me is the uh, the difference uh, and the dichotomy, because on the one hand, you have the uh, American and the Western voices saying that's it, it's happening on Wednesday. And then you look at the Russian front pages 
and it's not you know it's not even the top story um and obviously you know if there is is an invasion another invasion because obviously Russia's previously already invaded Ukraine um and there are sanctions and the US has been threatening massive sanctions and things like export controls bank sanctions Iran style Swift sanctions, it's all been mooted, then that would have a colossal impact on Russian stocks. But this week, particularly on Monday, you know, yeah, some of them fell, the ruble eased a bit, but it wasn't sort of this catastrophic uh, shift that you felt in the headlines of sort of some of the financial pages in English, uh, or the kind of the, the panic on uh, global markets. So, so just so talk us through a little bit. I mean, because obviously there's been lots of dire warnings from from Joe Biden uh, on down about what would happen uh, to to uh, the Russian government and to, to to Russian businesses and stuff in the event of a uh, an invasion. Just to talk us a bit of a through, like what can we sort of what are people what what might people expect in that situation and what how would we see that in financial markets. There's a lot of uncertainty still, I mean, on every level, uh, but there was a White House briefing paper that that talked about um, financial sanctions uh, and a lot of people are talking about sanctions on particular banks. Um, a lot of uh, there's a lot of talk on uh, sanctions also on individuals. It's sort of an extended uh, sanctions list of people who financially prop up the regime, for example, in Russia. Uh, but then there was also talk of things like import controls on things like computer chips, which is definitely an escalation. And that's not the sort of sanctions. Uh, it, those sanctions wouldn't take the form of the sanctions that have come before. So that would be a really big deal. But, you know, we essentially really don't know. And we know that the US has got to balance a tough line on, you know, what it sees as, as aggression from Russia from the Kremlin with needing to protect its own economy. So it's it's unlikely that it's going to particularly do anything that would mess with uh, commodity markets, in particular energy markets, because it's also grappling with much higher inflation and, you know, has these domestic concerns that are paramount. Yeah, I mean, not just the US economy, right? I mean, in Western Europe is obviously heavily dependent on imported gas from Russia and and you can imagine a situation where these sanctions, if they were really, really draconian, they would make it hard for, for people to buy Russian gas um, with all the consequences that would flow from that. So so then so if we're looking, I mean, I, I take the point that there are lots of uncertainties and clearly the US is not being completely clear about what the sanctions would look like. But if you're trying to look at the Russian stock market for sort of clues about companies that might be hit and, and how investors are thinking about those companies. Um, I, I mean, if you, you and your piece, you talked specifically about Sparebank, a big Russian bank. Um, what, what, what can we sort of surmise from, from looking at how that's been trading? So, yeah, Sparebank is the really big one because it's kind of the lifeblood, if you will, of, of the Russian economy. It's got more than 100 million customers. It's been expanding. A lot. In fact, earlier in the year, um, it sort of had its biggest, you know, biggest share price ever. And the the fear is that 
if it's locked out of the international um, banking system and out of the dollar system, then it's, you know, its business would massively slow down. And that's kind of, you know, there's, of course, there's been a big sell off since autumn when it sort of reached its record high because it's an incredibly profitable bank. You know, of course, there's been a sell off, but it's still the, the company's still worth the bank is still worth more than it was sort of, you know, at various points in in 2020, 2019, and before that, you know, it's still in in better shape uh, than around 2015. So, in a way, we can uh, conclude from that that certainly, you know, the, those kinds of sanctions aren't a a done deal, uh, which you know you'd expect because obviously there hasn't been an, an invasion, and and we don't know what the sanctions would be. But I'd say that they were, you know, far from being priced in, possibly because you know, on the one hand sanctioning Russia's biggest bank would be a very big deal but you know and would have all these other consequences for the global banking system and for banks particularly European banks that that deal with it so you know there's an argument to be had that that's that would be tricky for the US to pull off anyway uh, but the point is these absolutely disastrous sanctions and uh, you know a big proper full-scale invasion it appears are priced in yeah, I mean, so so it's an interesting point you make there. So so essentially, one possibility is that Russian investors are a bit more sanguine about the possibility of an imminent war, or they're thinking actually, war seems pretty likely, but that that the sanctions may not be that bad. I mean, you talked about you talked about it not featuring on the front pages of the of the sort of the Russian media and so forth. Um, I mean, clearly the Kremlin has played down the possibility of an invasion all along, but we also know that, you know, we don't necessarily always believe at face value everything the Kremlin says. Um, what, what, just in terms of the people that you're talking to there, how, how are they thinking about it? And, and you would, you know, you would expect sort of people with, with insight into, and, and knowledge of the situation to be sort of voting with their wallets one way or another. What, what, what sort of feedback are you getting? Well, it's funny. On the one hand, people are kind of saying we're not expecting it and that there hasn't been obviously sort of the discourse and will there be a war won't there be a war has featured heavily in in media and sort of state news channels but there isn't a sense that people are being prepared for the for an incursion especially given that you know there are a lot of ukrainians that live and work in russia a lot of uh russians that live and work in ukraine you know people have family members there so you kind of expect the populace to be prepared for, you know, for those those sort of emotional seeds to be sown a little bit more, um, like they were, I think, in the run up to the Crimea and the annexation of Crimea. And arguably that was different because it, it take, plays a different role in the sort of the Russian psyche. So on the one hand, people are like, it's it's fine, you know, downplaying the risks of a war. The one the one data point I did see is that lots of people are buying up, snapping up smartphones. So it's a bit of this cognitive dissonance there where on the one hand they're saying it's going to be fine, you guys, it's just Western media, like they're not all out of proportion. And on the other hand, I've got to get a smartphone in case there are import bans and I don't get one. So sort of also tells you something about, I don't know, people's priorities day to day. Exactly. Can you imagine being without the latest iPhone? Dasha, this was this was really, uh, really, really interesting insight. Uh, thank you. And uh, I'm sure it's a topic that, unfortunately, we will probably come back to uh, in the coming weeks and months. 
So let's turn from from a the possibility of a real fight to a more metaphorical fight, which is the, the European Central Bank's fight against inflation. Waha, you wrote an interesting piece about this this week. Um, just looking at the at the sort of the different balls that that Christine Lagarde from the ECB has to keep in the air as she tries to decide whether or not to raise rates. Tell me a bit about sort of what those different considerations are. Uh, I mean, central banks everywhere in the world are having to juggle quite a lot of things. The two main issues that they're having to sort of trade off between is inflation's very high, they need to get a grip on it, and they don't want to act so fast, on the other hand, that they kill growth. Christine Lagarde, ha- who's the head of the European Central Bank, has an extra issue that she has to keep a close eye on, which is what are the differences between the government bond yields in- between different Eurozone countries? So these are called yield spreads in shorthand. Those yield spreads in the past have blown out to such a point that they have either hurt the ECB's ability to get its monetary policy to act as effectively as it would like, or in the extreme, as people will remember during the Eurozone debt crisis, they got to levels where the market and the wider population started talking about the actual risk of a breakup of the Euro single currency, which is supposed to be irreversible. So these spreads, yield spreads, are very important. They're not at danger levels. But as interest rates rise, there's a risk that they won't be able to control them in the way they've been doing when inflation was very low, interest rates were very low, and the central bank was buying huge amounts of bonds. Right. This this is the big shift, right, is that the, the, the ECB has had this huge bond buying program for, for well, best part of a decade, I think. Um, and, um, and, and, and in order to raise rates, they would first have to stop buying those bonds, and they would do that more quickly than um, than people expected. So, I mean, you would kind of have thought that if they were going to stop buying bonds at some point, then then that would have an effect on the spreads. At what point do you think investors should really, and, and I guess the ECB itself, should start getting worried about the level of those spreads? I mean, these things are not set in stone. There's no like red line past which this is untenable. So people are guessing anything between 250, 300 basis points for the key spread that people look at, which is the Italian bond yield versus the German one. Italy's the Eurozone's third biggest country. Germany sets the benchmark for Eurozone yields. So that's a really key spread. And and yeah, and Italy is also... Uh, the sort of most indebted large country in uh, in the eurozone, right? So it has but, but, there's, yeah, a, there's a lot of Italian bonds out there. Um, exactly. We're some way away from even these sort of guesstimates of where pain thresholds might lie. So um, just to give some context, the spread between Italian and German ten-year government bonds has moved up by a third since the beginning of the year, roughly. But even then, it's only got to about 170 at most and come back down a little bit from there now. That's some way away from what anybody considers a pressure point for the ECB. Mm. I see. OK, so so what what tools does the does the ECB have in its toolkit if this were to become a problem, assuming obviously that they've that they're basically done with buying bonds more generally, that that, that, that program is over. Are, are there other things that, that they could do? Well, 
I mean, technically, of course, they can pull lots of rabbits out of hats. And um, when we talk about they're not going to buy bonds anymore, they're not going to buy new bonds anymore. They are going to carry on reinvesting the proceeds of anything that they already own that's maturing. So there is still bond buying going on, but not net new bond buying, if you like. So they can be very flexible about how they reinvest what's maturing and buy sort of a bunch of bonds from the countries that are under pressure, Italy or Spain or whoever was feeling the pain. Um, you could also, if at a push, revive something that was uh, devised during Christine Lagarde's predecessor's time, the famous Mario Draghi, which was never used. That, however, has conditionalities attached, which is likely to be very unpalatable for governments. And, you know, there's always the issue, well, why not invent something completely new? There's the very inventive Philip Lane, who's the chief economist of the ECB, and, you know, clever men like that will think of new things uh, that don't uh, sort of hit government's parameters. The issue, however, is that you are raising rates, you are tightening monetary policy. Buying government bonds is effectively loosening policy. So if the ECB is embarking on a gradual, even a gradual series of rate rises, it's sort of at odds with that policy to be buying bonds on the other hand in any meaningful size. You can do it at the margin, but real big bond buying as they've done in the past to con combat fragmentation and bond yield widening, it's not really very coherent. And that's the fundamental problem that Christine Lagarde faces. Yeah, it would be quite something for the ECB to use the firefighting policies devised by Mario Draghi when he was head of the ECB to impose those on Italy, whose prime minister is now Mario Draghi. Um, <laughs> but, um, um, I guess we're not quite there yet, but, um, but that would be... Uh, that would be quite something to watch if that ever came to pass. Well, this, uh, this has been really interesting. Thank you. And um, uh, I'm sure it's a topic we will return to in the coming weeks and months. Hey, welcome to Asia. I'm Anthony Curry. And joining me today from our bureau in Mumbai is Yuna Galani. Uh, good morning. No, good afternoon now, Yuna, I think. How are you doing? Good afternoon, just Anthony. Lovely yeah. to be here. So it's being billed as the sale of the century, but also as a deal that's being rushed out to market too quickly by half. It's the stock market debut of Life Insurance Corporation of India, or LIC, and it's slated to happen by the end of March. Now, you know, before we delve into whether you think this is a good or bad deal or something else, let's quickly fill us in on the basics of LIC's business. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's really unusual because insurance you know, even for someone like myself who grew up in London in a fairly sort of developed financial market, it's not something that, you know, I don't have insurers' names at my fingertips. But in India, LIC is just a household name. It's synonymous with something safe. And it's it's eff effectively the first financial product that anyone who has a bit of like savings to park or wants to diverse away, mm -hmm. diversify away from savings and gold, you know, heads towards and and it's sort of like they're using insurance primarily as a savings product it's not really as an insurance product and and it's just this sort of incredible company with in, in an insane reach it's it has 1.3 million agents and something like 3000 branches and satellite offices you know and and it's and it's has 290 million policyholders which is enough to touch every household in india you know what? One more quick question before we we delve deeper into the deal itself. Am I right? You said there's 1.3 million agents at this company. 
Yeah, it's, it's incredible. So they sell their products through these self-employed entrepreneurs who are spread across the country from, you know, your mountain village to your urban colony. And, and the LIC agent is a sort of famous thing in Indian culture. It's a bit like a family friend, you know, self-employed entrepreneur. He knows your birthday. He knows your wedding anniversary. He knows when you need to renew your driving license. And, and that's how they sell these products to individuals. It's just, um, you know, so the LIC agent is, is a sort of mythical thing that people sort of ought to think ought, like your film ought to be made about. Right. Well, it probably will now, especially if they're, they're going to uh, get some money out of this deal. But who knows, we'll get to that in a second. But I do worry, as an aside, that, you know, you privatise a company or you put a company on the stock market and uh, that kind of culture sort of gradually shifts away. But we'll see. Let's hope it doesn't happen. It sounds like quite a... a, a, a a good culture. Um, so, you know, the deal itself, um, let's go back to that. So this is the first time it's, got, it's been listed on the stock market. Is it a privatization? Is it not? Uh, I know because a lot of Indian state-held companies are also traded on the stock market and there's no desire for the, company, the state to get out of the stakes they've got left. So where does this one fit? Yeah, this is most definitely not a privatization, but it is sort of being... I think it tells you a lot about the government's sort of track record and reluctance to sell off state assets, that it's sort of being hailed as one of sorts. The fact that they're just willing to give up 5% of this thing into the public stock market is seen right. as sort of huge, huge reform. But it is just, uh, you know, there's no reason to believe that beyond some marginal improvements in, you know, in the way this thing is operated, like that it would behave particularly differently as a publicly traded company, it's still going to be majority owned overwhelmingly by the government. So what's what's the point of the listing then? If it's only going to be 5%, not going to do anything more with it, what, why does it need to be public? Well, it's, it's, a, it's effectively a cash cow. I mean, this is a government, like many governments around the world, that is feeling the financial pinch uh, from the pandemic. You know, even though India didn't spend a lot of money in supporting its population through the pandemic. They didn't have the means to do that, like many emerging markets. Their revenues were hit quite badly. And so net-net, uh, government borrowing has gone up and the government's fiscal deficit has blown out. And they want the proceeds, they're looking for about $8 billion of proceeds from this deal. And they want the proceeds to come in by the end of March, because that's when the financial year ends. And if you get the proceeds in by the end of March, then the government will also have a second win, which is they'll actually hit their budgeted target for asset sales. And that's also a reform of sorts because the bar is so low, right. because they never meet those targets. They, they always miss them. But, but the flip side of that is that you're now rushing to do this really big deal in a very short time space. Is, is it that short a time space? I know you were talking about this last year that at some point LIC's IPO would probably come to market. So what what makes it so quick? I mean, look, I mean, we look at deals I've looked at down here in Australia, back in the States and Europe. They can take a while to get up and running, but once the, the trigger is pulled and people say, right, this is what we think we're going to try and raise, then it's only a few weeks to the market. So what makes this one, one so quick? Well, you know, this is India. This will be India's largest ever IPO by a magnitude of three or four times. So that's the first thing. So it's a big swallow for the market. Second is it is a really complicated company because as well as being an insurer, you know, it's its book contains 4% 
of the stock market's value. It's got sort of like $106 billion of assets that own states and everything from Reliance right. to, uh, you know, TCS, the, the consultant, the, you know, the, the IT outsourcing company. I mean, everything it owns. And so it's very... There's a lot to look at under the lid. That's one. The second reason is, is they're also trying to sell about 10% of this offer to policyholders. Now, India doesn't have that many. India's got 290 million policyholders, but it doesn't have anywhere near that many amount of stock market investing investors, which means that this deal is going to bring many people, if it's successful in selling it to these policyholders, right. many new investors to a stock market. So you can't, you know, you can't rush a process like this. Actually, I'm just thinking back, showing my age to the privatizations that the British government did in the 80s and early 90s. And you're right; there was a long campaign. There were long campaigns on those, you know, the gas company, to make sure that people knew that they could go out and buy it. People like right. True. And the danger of rushing it is that you know you will misprice it, and that the deal will come to market at a time when the U.S is about to raise interest rates or has raised interest mm. rates. Markets are volatile. You've mispriced this thing. You've got millions of first-time investors, and then you have a rubbish secondary trade. And that's just not going to go down very well. Um, it will create a bit of a stink if that's what happens. I'm sure they've got lots of great anchor investors lined up, and that mm. will that will steady it a bit. But, you know, that hasn't helped. Having a solid anchor book hasn't helped other big recent Indian IPOs, especially the tech ones, which are which are down really, really quite sharply, half a bit like many of the global tech names have. No, exactly. Because I remember you writing a very good story about, about Paytm last year and it's it's uh, it's tragedy of an IPO uh, slump. Yeah. Um, I mean so, the challenge here is yeah. that they're gonna have to figure out how to 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 how, what kind of discount to put on it because state companies will always command a discount to private ones because they're less efficient. Right. And in India's case uh, it's, it's, a, it's extra complicated because LIC is growing much slower and is much less profitable than its peers. So it needs a healthy discount. And then it might need even more than a healthy discount if you want to ensure the secondary trade is going and because you right. want to get the deal done by the end of March. Well, I mean, yeah. so I, you are definitely coming down on the side of this is this is being a rushed out to party quick by half. The way you describe it, it's like, there is a really good company in there with a lot of history. Do you just want to get right when it's getting it out to, 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 to market and to get the right kind of the, the people you want involved to get involved knowledgeably and everything? So what do you think? You think it's, you think it's going to get done by, by the end of March? Come what may? Well, let, let's put it this way. I don't envy Citigroup because Citigroup is the bank, one of 10, that has been placed in charge of coordinating the finalization of the pricing. And that's sort of like a kind of wordy way of saying that they're going to sort of set the price. And I'm sure the government will have their say, but, and, and I agree with you, it's a, there is a great asset underneath here and lots of value. But the idea of trying to rush it out, it just feels like you're cutting your nose off to spite your face because you've got, you just, it's, a, it's a short term win when actually, you know, yeah. the markets just want to see and global investors want just want to see that India is ready to reform, if you're going to call this a reform, that and, and you know, like getting it done, whether it happens four weeks out or eight weeks out, I don't think uh, in the grand scheme of things, it's going to matter very much. Well, great. Thanks, Una. And thanks for talking us through that. Uh, let's revisit uh, this once it comes to market. Thanks very much. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Katrina Hamlin in Hong Kong, 
Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on Acast, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. Check out our latest views on these stories and many others at breakingviews.com and on Twitter, where our handle is at breakingviews.